the great fundamental issue now before our people can be stated. It is, are the American people fit to govern themselves, to rule themselves, to control them? I believe they are. My opponents do not. of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic processes. the future and the image of our hopes is ours is to determine by our actions and our choices. If we succeed, generations to come will say of us now living that we mastered our moment. Americanism, not globalism, will be our credo. The Red Pill. Listen to the right take. Hello, everybody, and welcome to a very special episode this time of The Right Take. I'm Eric Lindrum, here with my co-host Jacob Grandstaff, and we're going to be doing something a little different here for you guys, starting with this episode. So, you know how we usually do things around here at The Right Take, of course. We uh, we talk about a few little mini-topics, and then we have a major topic that dominates the last uh, quarter, last third, last half of the episode, give or take. Yeah, just kind of limited in time, just going an hour, slightly over an hour every week. I mean, we could we could do a show every day, actually. Every day of the week and uh, cover an hour worth of topics. Exactly, but some topics are truly are more important than others, and a lot of them are are certainly more evergreen topics, shall we say, compared to the stuff that flies between the trends of the mass media cycle, especially social media cycle, where, you know, every week, every day, every hour, every minute, there's a new topic, whereas others are just always relevant, no matter what's going on. So we're going to start doing this series of special episodes every now and again, and we're going to call it the long take where Jacob and I just sit down and have a long form discussion. No scripts, no, no talking points, really. We, we of course, have our sources pulled up, but we're just going to kind of freestyle it basically and what better topic to talk about for the inaugural episode of the long take with the right take than the issue that i think we can both agree certainly is still the most important issue of the day we've talked of course about other issues that have come and gone that 
are proving significant on the culture war front. We talked about uh, in a recent episode how the rise of the term groomer and grooming on the mainstream right is so powerful and impactful against the left, certainly in the midterms, but also in general. But if there is one issue that defines the America First agenda, there's one issue that really propelled Donald Trump to the White House and launched this new era of true paleoconservatism, a, a new form of paleoconservatism, as you will, for the 21st century, it was immigration. So, of course, that will be the topic of this first episode. Immigration. What you need to know about immigration, the history of immigration leading up to where we are now with just mass migration that really kind of started in the 60s, courtesy of the same guy who gave us, you know, the the great society that went in conjunction with basically repealing a lot of restrictions on immigration, that wonderful scoundrel Lyndon Johnson, who basically kind of got the ball rolling to where we are now, where now under Biden and Kamala, we have millions of illegals flooding across the border, tens of thousands every single day, and it's not going to get better anytime soon. This is still the existential crisis facing our nation and indeed facing Western civilization, because again, if America falls, you know, who's to stop that from possibly happening in other Western countries as well, you know, the UK and elsewhere. So let's get started. Let's get back to the basics and also talk about what the right take is on immigration, what a true America first stance on immigration should be. So, Jacob, want to kind of give us a background here and get us started? Well, to start, let's kind of define where the right is currently on immigration, go back a little bit into recent history. So if we go back to the 2016 election, Trump obviously was uh, launched to the forefront of the Republican Party by saying they're bringing drugs, they're bringing crime, they're rapists, they're, they're rapists. and some, I assume, are good people. Which was kind of a way, like, he, I think he realized he'd gone a little bit far, and a lot of people would be accusing him of being xenophobic against Mexicans, so he's kind of got to backtrack a little bit. Okay, I assume some of these Mexicans are good people, but the, the sentiment was there among most of Americans, because if you remember in the 2012 debate, in the South Carolina Republican primary debate in 2012, when Newt Gingrich shot up to the forefront of, Amer- of the Republican Party and became the uh, – he won his first state and became the instant frontrunner, in the South Carolina debate, they mentioned Mexico in a question. All they did, the moderator simply mentioned the word Mexico in a question, and the crowd instantly erupted in boos. Oh, they, I don't even remember they that. They booed what, – what were you in? Oh, that's right. You were I, in I kindergarten. In school, yeah. Oh, I thought you were in kindergarten. <laughs> anyway, so Gee, they thanks. instantly <laughs> burst out in boos. It was the loudest that any candidate or any moderator was booed during the entirety of the 2012 election. And I remember at the time thinking, these people are idiots. Like all they did was mention the word Mexico in a question. And I remember I got a lot of pushback on on the right. People were thinking, these what is this, the Budweiser crowd or whatever in South Carolina they brought out? All they do is mention Mexico and everyone just immediately burst out in booze. Was this a Klan meeting or something? Yeah. That's, like, that's what a, pe- a lot of people were thinking. Like, well, these people, this is a, a NASCAR drunken rally or whatever. But the sentiment was there on the right. People had a profoundly – negative opinion of the country of Mexico. Mm -hmm. And the reason they had a profoundly negative opinion of the country of Mexico was because of the massive influx of illegal immigration that we had received from Mexico in the early 2000s. And a lot of people trace the origins of the Tea Party anger, the Tea Party sentiment to the reform um, bill, the Immigration Reform Acts that were being debated in Congress in 2007 and 2008 when you had a lot of Republican senators who were getting behind amnesty. They were wanting to provide a pathway to amnesty for 11 million people who were in this country illegally. It might have even been more than that. And it passed the Senate overwhelmingly. And then again, when Marco Rubio, you had the Gang of Eight passing, uh, pushing their Senate bill, um, that, that passed the Senate overwhelmingly. In fact, it passed with a veto majority in the Senate. If Even if Obama had wanted to veto that bill, there were enough senators to override his veto and pass that. Now, thankfully, it died in the House, but all those bills died in the House. 
But it just showed the disconnect between where the politicians were and where the voters were because there was massive backlash to this. Americans overwhelmingly did not want illegal immigrants to receive amnesty. But these Republican senators who were backed by the Chamber of Commerce, who were backed by business-friendly Republicans and their donors, they were light years away from where the grassroots were, the working-class Republicans were. And this is really where you saw a major shift among the working class Democrats from the Democratic um, Party over to the Republican Party, but not specifically to the Republican Party. They weren't recruited by these pro-business types like the Marco Rubios. They were recruited by the people who they knew in their neighborhoods who were registered Republicans and working class like they were who were inviting them to Tea Party rallies. So I saw a poll in 2011, they, and they polled people on their support of the Tea Party. And, and they polled people, what, what do you think about the Tea Party? But also polled people asking them if they were part of the Tea Party. And 15% of people who said they were part of the Tea Party, not supportive, but uh, actually had participated in marches, were registered Democrats. So this was the beginning of the major shift. A lot of people talk about Reagan Democrats, but it's kind of overemphasized. The point at which blue, uh, white, blue-collar workers actually ma- uh, made a major shift over to the Republican Party was during the Obama years. And it was primarily because of immigration. Of course, obviously because of Obama's race-baiting. But to move from where we are now to to look back at the history of immigration to kind of figure out how we got to this point, we need to first look at what at what Americans actually want when it comes to immigration. Because most people have been fed the propaganda that we are a nation of immigrants over and over again. We're a nation of immigrants. We have to support mm-hmm. open borders, have to support immigration. The pilgrims but, were immigrants. We were all immigrants, guys. So just to kind of give an idea of what the American people would like to see. So in the China, the Chinese Exclusion Act, which we'll talk about that in a second, the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882 and the Alien Contract Labor Laws of 1885 and 1887 prohibited certain laborers from entering – from immigrating to the United States. The General Immigration Act of 1882 levied a head tax of 50 cents on each immigrant and blocked or excluded the entry of idiots, lunatics, and convicts. Nice. So this – just to kind of sum it up of where the American people are when it comes to immigration, most Americans would like to see – go back to 1880s immigration policy where we eliminate the entry of idiots, lunatics, and convicts. Americans want an immigration system where you have people coming to the country who are good, honest, hardworking people who are going to assimilate into the country. Their kids are going to grow up speaking American English, not some kind of butchered form of English because uh, you encounter a lot of kids of immigrants and they don't even speak good English. Right. It's like how did you grow up in this country and come through our school system and you can't even speak proper English? But most Americans want immigrants' kids to grow up speaking proper American English, learning patriotic American nationalist history, yep. having a pro-America view, and assimilating into our ethnicity. This and not is the ha- view of most American citizens. And not have businesses say, businesses say press two for Spanish. You know, No one wants that. Correct, correct. Because if you're in this country, you grow up in – I get it if you're an immigrant and you came here from another country. But if you grow up in the country, there's really no excuse for not being assimilated. So to kind of go back to – through the history of immigration, let's we're going to start with the colonial period and briefly give an overview of, of – uh, up to about 1986, I believe you're a little bit more familiar with the 1986 Immigration yes. Act. I kind of did the research basically up to that point. We'll come back to that. So as, as of course, everyone knows, we're not going to give a history of the United States, but as everyone knows, uh, the first two uh, major, uh, I guess you could say, founding points in this country were Jamestown and Plymouth. And the Plymouth, found, uh, the Plymouth colony was founded mostly by Puritans. The Jamestown colony was founded mostly by economic migrants and indentured servants. So throughout the colonial period, the view of the British Empire, as with any empire, was that anyone coming from the mother country was a citizen of the colony. Anyone coming from a non-British country, so a non who wasn't English, Scotch, or Welsh, was not able to be 
naturalized. So if you were a German immigrant moving to Massachusetts, you weren't supposed to be allowed to be naturalized. You could work there and live there, but you wouldn't be able to be protected by the laws of Massachusetts. Now, the colonies in America, they overrode that, and they started naturalizing people without the consent of Britain. In 1700, Britain passed a law to make to crack down on this. They eventually amended it in 1740 because the colonies in America were a lot more lax in their views of other European immigrants coming to the United States or coming to the American colonies at the time. And this was, in fact, one of the the points of contention between the colonies and the mother country. Whenever the American colonies broke away, they mentioned in the Declaration of Independence that w- one of their complaints was that England w- or the UK – not the UK, the Great Britain at the time was stepping in the way of them naturalizing people in their colonies and uh, stepping in the way of them giving these German immigrants, these Dutch immigrants equal rights. After the United States was founded, we passed the 1790 Immigration Act. The 1790 Immigration Act limited immigration to free white persons who were immigrating, obviously mostly from Europe, and that was amended in 1795 to allow for um, for five years of – you had to be in the country for five years before you could be naturalized. In 1798, this is when there was a huge issue between the Democratic Republicans and the Federalists. The Democratic Republicans were supportive – still supportive of the French Revolution. The Federalists were a lot more – hesitant to allow in French into the country because they felt that their Republican morals would corrupt the, the the Republican morals of the United States. In other words, they didn't want radicals coming over from France and undermining the American Republic. So they moved the naturalization process from five years to 14 years. This, of course, was vehemently opposed by Thomas Jefferson and the Democratic Republicans who were very pro-immigrant. They wanted to try to attract as many Im- uh, European immigrants as they possibly could. That was overturned in 1802, and the process was shortened from 14 years to five years, which is mainly the standard now. You typically have to be a legal immigrant in America for five years before you can apply for naturalization. It varies by visa, but that's pretty much the standard. Um, during economic downturns, you would in turn, you would always have um, opposition to immigration because obviously Americans were competing for scarce jobs. They didn't want foreign labor um, competing with their with American natural born American citizens. In the 1830s and 40s, we saw a spike in immigration, mostly from German and Irish Catholics. And, of course, the Irish potato famine brought in a total of uh, – between the 1840s and 1920 brought in about 4.5 million Irish. And just for reference, when slavery ended in America, there were about 4 million freed slaves. So there were more Irish immigrants between the 1840s and the 1920s than there were the total number of freed slaves in 1865. If you watch the movie Gangs of New York, you can get an idea of you know how there very much was ethnic violence between the uh, the native Protestants and the Irish Catholics who came to America during this time. Yeah, this actually prompted a political party in itself that was based on anti-immigrant sim- sentiment. This was known as the American Party or the, as its enemies called it, the Know Nothing Party. <laughs> and they actually fi- – um, uh, Millard Fillmore, uh, who was a president in the 1840s, he ran on the Know Nothing ticket in 1856. They got a they, you know huge share of the vote. They elected – I don't know if they elected anyone to Congress, but they elected people at the state level. And this was primary, primarily um, because of anti-Catholic, specifically anti-Irish sentiment. Samuel Morse, the inventor of Morse code, he was one of the most prominent anti-Catholic uh, crusaders in the United States against the against the immigration. They what, what these people wanted is they wanted the United States to put strict quotas on the immigration of Catholics. Now, at the time, Federal – the federal government really didn't get involved in immigration that much. It's kind of hard for us to, to conceptualize this in this day and age. But at the time, states were the ones who dealt with immigration policies. So a state could exclude people from their state borders if they didn't want someone of a particular 
religion or whatever coming into their state. The federal well, government was mostly hands off. If only it were that way today. If only that were that way today. Oh, a lot of people – I've actually heard a lot of people make the argument that what we need to do is as conservatives, we need to move to conservative states and build up these red states and then let's exclude these immigrants who come in from other states. I'm like you can't do that. This is the problem whenever – a lot of people think, OK, well, we'll let California be California. No. If people enter California, they can move – to Mississippi. Exactly. If, and they are doing that. They're moving primarily to Texas and they're still casting their votes for Democrats in Texas because a lot of Californians are just either too stupid as a former Californian. I say this too stupid or too arrogant to acknowledge that voting for Democrats was the problem. Yeah, you, you can have you got free movement of people and goods across state lines. So you can't uh, you can't rely on states remaining red uh, that um, on the issue of immigration. You have to capture the federal government that there's no other you know, there's no solution to that. So everyone is familiar with the Dred Scott decision in which the Supreme Court ruled that black people have never been American citizens and they cannot be American citizens. The reason why this this decision, if you set aside the moral aspect of it, the reason why this decision was so controversial and I would argue incorrect is because from the beginning of the American Republic, certain states did allow black people, free black people to be citizens. In fact, going all the way back to the 1740s and 1750s, Massachusetts was one of the few colonies that actually allowed black people to vote even during colonial times. So at the time, citizenship was viewed state by state, and because you, if you were a citizen of one state, it was kind of understood that you would be a citizen of all states. This decision was not – was based on English common law because remember, if you go back to what I just said about the way that the British colony viewed citizenship and naturalization, if you were a German and you moved to a British colony in the 1730s, you were not legally allowed to be naturalized as a citizen of that colony. So they viewed Africans who were in the United States – this is the way the Dred Scott logic worked – Africans who were in the United States could not be naturalized because like Germans moving to, say, Pennsylvania in the 1730s, they were not ethnically part of the makeup of that country. Now, again, going back to the way that the colonies naturalized people – Back in the 1750s, 1760s, that was technically wrong because if a state – say if Massachusetts wanted to naturalize blacks, they could be citizens of Massachusetts and therefore citizens of the entire country. So moving forward, after the Civil War, obviously the 14th Amendment gave citizenship to all black Americans, the descendants of slaves and the former slaves. In 1870, they passed an immigration law. That allowed for the naturalization of people of African descent. This was the first time in U.S. history where non-white people were allowed to move to the United States and be naturalized. Now, it excluded people of Asian descent. So in the 1870s, after this law was passed, it was only legal for people of European descent and African descent to move to the United States and become naturalized citizens. So there, if you go back in the history of immigration, there were people from Africa in the 1870s and 80s who could move here and after five years gain U.S. citizenship. And the thought behind that was we need to limit American citizenship to white people and black people because we have two ethnicities. We have the white American ethnicity and the black American ethnicity, and African immigrants can assimilate into the black American ethnicity – White immigrants from Europe can assimilate into the white American ethnicity. The idea being that presumably these were the two ethnicities that really played the crucial roles in the foundation of America. You know, again, Africans as you know in the colonial times and being here as slaves, and of course white Europeans like the white founding fathers. So compared to like you know obviously during the revolution, there weren't exactly a lot of Asians here in the United States during the uh, during our revolution. There weren't a lot of uh, Hispanics here during the uh, or whatever they they were referred to back then. That those two were the most integral ethnicities to the foundation of the United States. 
Okay, so now Asian immigration. Let's uh, discuss the history of Asian immigrant immigration. Obviously, uh, as the media and our establishment, probably backed by the CIA, was trying their best to turn Asian Americans against white Americans at this time last year during the whole uh, whole stop Asian hate oh, hoax. I keep they, being reminded of that. What they a kept, failure they that were, was. They were pushing. They were pushing explicitly racial videos on YouTube, and YouTube was boosting these videos. When they brought on – and they would bring on prominent Asian-Americans, actors, musicians, yep. and they were bringing up the Chinese Exclusion Act. I suppose it's trying to gin up anger among people in the 21st century for something that happened, something that happened in the 1870s. I was in Union Station one day and saw you know, those like digital screens they have of like advertisements and whatnot. I literally saw one that said you know, uh, racism is not an opinion or something, and it says hashtag stop Asian hate. This yeah, that, was like in 2020. In Union Station. That thing died so fast. It was it, – because it's obvious. Like there's no – you can't you – can't, what they're trying to do is recreate the Black Lives Matter moment yep. for, for Asian every, Americans. Well, they were trying to do it essentially for every ethnicity I think other than white people yeah. because they wanted to build that coalition. But again – It just doesn't work. It doesn't work with non-black Americans to try to gin up that kind of uh, frustration. Well, and especially because the handful of instances they try to highlight because you know they have the handful of infamous black lives matter cases from trayvon up to george floyd but they try to do that with asian americans random you know random whatever cases of asians suddenly being attacked and killed in the streets almost every single example they cited the perpetrator was a black person you know yeah. like the old man in san francisco like so many so it, it just fell it apart didn't fit the way. narrative yeah so uh, most people they vaguely know about the chinese exclusion act and it, it's kind of like whenever you teach anti-white history to white americans the typical response especially among middle-class suburban white people should just kind of sit through it, memorize what they need to know to pass the test. They pass the test and instantly forget about it because they just kind of – their eyes glaze over. And it's like, okay, yeah, I know. White people were bad. Our yep. ancestors were horrible. We excluded Chinese. We treated black people horribly. Okay, next. All right, the exactly. football game. That's what we should do. That's not what we should do. Well, that I is mean, not you, what we should do. We should, Instead, do, we should do in the sense that you know we pass their test. This is a debate I remember having back in college because I had to take classes like that. Is you, you shut up long enough to take the test and pass the class so that you get your degree, you get your diploma, and whatever, and then you use that against them when you enter the workforce. On, on the individual level, that's yeah, obviously that's what you have to do. You don't have a choice. But as as a collective, Americans, specifically white Americans, should not just. It's like okay, it's kind of like you go to a theme park. You ride the rides and you go through the history thing and you hear the anti-white propaganda. It's like, okay, nice. All right. And then move on to the next ride. This is the problem with white Americans. We have a theme park mentality. Instead of doubling down and actually learning our history, finding out what this stuff is, how much of this is true, how much of it is false, because a lot of it is true. Some of it is false. They sprinkle a little bit of truth and mix it in with their propaganda. And a lot of it is exaggerated as well. Uh, true. Well, most of it is exaggerated. But instead of just letting our eyes glaze over, it's like, okay, whatever, whatever. Yeah, white people bad, non-white people good. I got it. Okay, move on to the next. You know, Instead of taking that attitude, white people need to actually use a little bit of intellectual – you know, they need to work a little bit intellectually rather than being so intellectually lazy because this is really intellectual laziness by not actually learning this stuff and finding out what is true, what is false. No other ethnicity on the planet would allow their people's history to be maligned like this without at least learning the facts to find out what is true, what is false, and being able to refute it. Because this is, you cannot separate history from politics, it's our job as if we're going to be – if we're going to vote – to actually understand this stuff, to understand what is correct and what is false about these narratives. So why? let's look at why the Chinese Exclusion Act was actually passed and what it was meant to accomplish. Before the Civil War, you had a massive influx of Chinese immigrants who came to the West Coast during the California Gold Rush. And when I say massive influx, I mean tens of thousands of Chinese folks came as laborers. Also, many of them came as prospectors like people from the East Coast, from the United States. 
Now, at the time, China forbade immigration to the United States. I'm not sure if they forbade it anywhere, but they didn't want their people coming to the United States for the same reason that a lot of countries don't want their people coming to the United States or anywhere because they lose laborers. They're losing people. No country wants their people to leave. Well, by the Civil War, over 60 percent of the people in California were non-native-born Americans. In other words, they were foreigners born in another country. This was creating a huge backlash among the American population in California because, as you can imagine, people wonder, like, am I in America or where am I at? I thought California belonged to the United States. Despite that, Secretary of State William Seward, he negotiated a treaty with China that allowed for immigration from China to the United States. And this is the thing a lot of people forget. China actually forbade their people from coming here. We negotiated a treaty to allow them to come here because the thought at the time was we're losing so many men on the battlefield. We need to increase immigration from anywhere we can get it, whether it's Europe, Asia, wherever, in order to build back our workforce. Well, this opened the floodgates. Tens of thousands of Chinese laborers, many of them extremely poor, flooded the West Coast. They were taking jobs, driving down salaries and driving down wages, just as any immigrant group that comes from a lower standard of living is going to do. And, of course, it produced a massive backlash. And among the the uh, the complaints among especially a lot of American Christians is a lot of the Chinese women without any means to support themselves returned to prostitution. And, of course, it was corrupting the morals of young American men who were going out there as laborers themselves. So a lot of the young American men found themselves unemployed because they couldn't compete with the, the cheaper Chinese labor. And, of course, they had plenty of time on their hands, so they would turn to crime turned to bank robberies or whatever else, using the money to buy pro- Chinese prostitutes. And it was just creating a huge immoral system in California. Uh, they pa- As a result, the, uh, the Congress passed the Chinese Exclusion Act, and it, uh, it blocked Chinese immigration for 10 years, and they eventually extended it to 1943. Now, the, now this brings us back to birthright citizenship, because everyone, as everyone knows, birthright citizenship allows anyone born on American soil to become an American citizen. The primary problem with mass immigration today, with yes, anchor yes, babies. As yes, all, it creates all these anchor babies. Now, the 14th Amendment, of course, was passed in order to give citizenship to the former African slaves. It initially was only applied to black Americans. It wasn't applied to foreigners. So when Chinese immigrants came here and they had kids, their kids were not made American citizens. Well, this was challenged to the Supreme Court, and it was the Supreme Court that said, yes, the 14th Amendment applies to anyone born on American soil. Which is just so fundamentally flawed. It, it is so fundamentally flawed. You're correct. And it's uh, – so from that – this was in the 1890s, um, a famous – I think it was uh, – I remember the exact name of the, the, the Supreme Court ruling. But yeah, this this essentially turned the 14th Amendment into an anchor baby provision. Now, just to stop in, in our historical timeline and kind of give the right take on the anchor baby situation – in, in a normal country, you've got to – obviously the 14th Amendment, uh, that section of it was necessary to ensure that black Americans would receive due process under the law. They would be considered – if they're born in America, that they would be considered U.S. citizens. But you could simply fix this by allowing – first of all, no one who is born to an illegal immigrant should be considered um, a U.S. citizen. Right. I, th- both, I think everyone agrees with both that. Both of the parents should be American citizens already. So I, I think that at, for a start, at least for for a start, well, yeah, for a start. But uh, let's let's think about the children of legal immigrants. So you have a legal immigrant family that comes here. The Fourteenth Amendment already excludes diplomats' kids from being considered U.S. citizens because their parents are working for a foreign government. You don't want their kids to get U.S. citizenship instantly. I think that should extend to legal immigrants. If and here the people would argue, okay, so what's the status of the child of a legal immigrant who is born in the United States? Here's my here's my opinion. You can tell me, uh, Eric, if you agree or disagree with this. Sure. My, my opinion on that is, if you're born to legal immigrants in the United States, in any country for that matter, 
you should be given birthright residency. And if you want citizenship, there should be a point in time when you can apply for U.S. citizenship. Um, when that point in time is, you could say 16, possibly 18. But because your parents were legal immigrants, then I would argue that you have permanent legal residency with the ability to apply for citizenship naturalization at a future date. Okay, because I was just going to ask. You, you said permanent just now. I was going to ask, okay, is there a maximum amount of time? Because, I mean, what if you get someone who decides, you know, I'm going to spend my whole life here as a legal resident, like 80-something years old, basically like he's like a diplomat, except they're, they're in this weird – because then that kind of puts them in this weird second-class phase, the second-class area where they're not American citizens, but they're not legal either. And, I mean, I understand, obviously, that is better than the current situation, but do we really want to create this kind of strange second-class where they're kind of in in a diplomatic and legal limbo, as it were? So, well, so the thing is, if you didn't do that, like, what would you say? Like, how would you classify the kids of legal immigrants? I mean, I certainly would, yeah. I, I would set a maximum amount of time that they can wait before they decide on citizenship. I would say maybe not 16 or 18, but probably... I don't know, maybe like mid-20s, like say maybe something like uh, 25 or maybe 30. I know they're very arbitrary age limits. For example, I'm thinking of the limits we have on serving in federal office. You have to be 25 to be in the U.S. House. You have to be 30 to be a senator. You have to be 35 to be president. So well, those are arbitrary ages. But I would think maybe something like uh, probably by the age of 25, you well, have to make a decision. Either, okay, I'm going to be a citizen or screw this, I'm out. I'm going to go back to my parents' country, something like that. Not not give it not make it permanent in my opinion. Well, the thing is, if you're here for five years, you can become a U.S. citizen. So if a if a twenty year old if an eighteen year old moves here, they can become a citizen at twenty three. So you have five years and before you can apply for citizenship. So right. the reason why I say sixteen or eighteen is they're no longer they you want them to be old enough to decide for themselves without their parent. You don't want to say like at age five, okay, you've been here from birth to age five, five years. Your kid, your parents can decide if you want to be a U.S. citizen. Oh, well, I think it, it should be yeah, their yeah. I think it should be their choice. But I don't think that we should deport people. Who are born in the United States to legal Mike to, to legal, legal immigrants. to legal yeah. immigrants? Like Absolutely. if you're born to a legal immigrant, I don't think you should be subject to deportation. I, th- I don't think you should be given instant U.S. citizenship. I think you should have to decide that on your own as an adult or at least as a 16 year old. But I don't I don't think we should deport those people. That, that's then, my opinion. I, I was gonna say because I, I like the idea, but again, I think this and we're not we're not policy nerds here at the right take. I mean, we know the details about a lot of things, but I'm just thinking off the top of my head. Like, okay, say they choose to maintain this 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 legal residence as you say they're not immigrant they're not citizens but they're legal residents here are they subject to taxes are they you know like are they able to say subject to certain benefits can they receive you know health care and one on the same way citizens would like these are the things i think about just off the top of my head because obviously you have illegals coming over here being given free everything free health care free education free housing and they don't have to pay taxes for it so obviously uh, that's that's another concern i think about as well well as a as a congressional bill whenever if they hopefully eventually will get this amended and get this changed and in the bill whenever they ended birthright citizenship, then they would stipulate – they would create – simply create a separate visa for people who are born in the United States to legal immigrants. They would have a separate visa that would stipulate all that, what they're subject to, what they're eligible for, all that all stuff like that. OK. Like burn that bridge when we get to it basically. OK. Yeah, I, I get what you're saying. No, that, that's a very interesting idea. I, I never would have thought of that because, of course, we do very much think – I mean as a society, we think in black and white terms when it comes to immigration because, uh, again, we absolutely do support – deportation of illegals and i th- i think including the children I'm, I'm sorry that's just the way it is you know because i to me yes I understand having sympathy for the kids but at the same time i have no sympathy for you know people who come here and deliberately are going to use their kids to use their newborn children 
as shields, basically, as meat shields, basically say, oh, you can't deport me because my child was born here. Because that person's not really – that the mother or the father, whoever's making that decision, they're not caring for the, the life of the child. They don't really care about the child. They care about themselves, and they're using the child to get ahead, and that's despicable to me. Right, right. Yeah, a lot of people, they just hop the border just so they can have an American citizen kid. <laughs> they're pregnant. Exactly. They're pregnant, and they literally – day after they reach the border, they cross the border, have the baby, boom, the American the baby's an American citizen. Like if the, if the authors of the 14th Amendment, if you were to go back in time and explain to them what this is going to lead to, oh, yeah. they would – they would be very, very specific that this applies only to freed African slaves. This does not apply to if you're not a, if your parents aren't slaves. This does not apply to you at all. But yeah, it's unfortunate that the Supreme Court ruled the way it did. But speaking of the Supreme Court, going back to what I was talking about, how the federal government at first didn't have jurisdiction over immigration. First, uh, immigration was um, yeah, obviously naturalization. The government from the, in the Constitution is, uh, gives the federal government the power to make naturalization law. But as far as immigration enforcement, that was left to the states. This changed in the late 1800s when the Supreme Court, prompted by a provision in the Chinese Exclusion Act, determined that Congress had an extra constitutional plenary power over immigration based on the, quote, incident of sovereignty rather than any specifically enumerated power. Now, the court reached this conclusion despite the fact that the Constitution explicitly enumerates other powers that are unquestionably an incident of sovereignty, such as regulating international commerce, raising an army, and declaring war. In the court's opinion, Justice uh, Justice Stephen Field recounted California's constitutional convention, which had found that, quote, the presence of Chinese laborers had a baneful effect upon the material interests of the state and upon public morals, that their imagination was in numbers approaching the character of an oriental invasion and was a menace to our civilization, end quote. Uh, Justice Field then reasoned that the United States had the power to preserve its independence and give security against foreign aggression and encroachment. And this kind of goes back to the point that we're facing now. Of course, Title 42 is set to be ended, I believe, on May 23rd. May 23rd. So you've got a situation where you have hundreds of thousands of people who are wanting to enter the country and claim asylum. It's legal to claim asylum. Now, you can argue that we need to change that law to prevent this from happening and prevent foreigners from taking advantage of our law like this. But it is legal to claim asylum. It is legal for these people to cross the border and turn themselves over to border agents and then be released into the interior until their court date. This is all legal. These people are not illegal immigrants, and it's important for conservatives to understand that because a lot of people think that all these migrants and all these caravans are all a bunch of illegals, and our government is just not enforcing the law. Now, the government is enforcing the law by allowing them to apply for asylum and then give them a court date and releasing them into the interior and expecting them to show up to their court dates. Now, of course, there are illegals coming over here who are never even caught in the first place. Like those, those are the ones referred to as gotaways, you know. And there's plenty of those that are not being accounted for. But yeah, I get what you're saying that they're they are using the laws to their advantage. But of course, the laws themselves are the problem here. But in this particular situation, California was complaining they wanted to pass a constitutional amendment that would exclude Chinese immigrants who were coming legally into the country. And the Supreme Court is arguing that the federal government has the authority to exclude people simply on the basis of them not being desired by the American population. And this kind of goes to popular sovereignty when you consider that the federal government, even though the Constitution does not give the federal government authority to exclude certain people of certain origin – you have to look at the cultural makeup of the country and ask yourself what groups of people can easily assimilate into the American culture. What is our culture? If you go back to the colonial era on immigration, you couldn't become a naturalized citizen of any of the colonies unless you were British. Now, the colonies made exceptions, obviously, against the will of Britain, but that was initially the understanding, the English common law understanding of citizenship is that if you were British, you could be a citizen. If you weren't, you could not. And this kind of builds on the – whenever you're discussing immigration, if you're going to be an immigrant to any country – or let me say this. If you're going to allow massive numbers of immigrants into your country, you have to take that into account. You have to consider 
do these people have a culture that's similar to our own and can they assimilate at these massive numbers? If you're having a trickle of Central Americans coming in, yes, they can assimilate. But whenever you've got hundreds of thousands at one time, going back to the way the Supreme Court viewed the massive numbers of Chinese coming into California and just overwhelming the native population, you have to also look at the situation today. You've got hundreds of thousands of foreigners coming into Texas, overwhelming the local, local population, outnumbering the local population. And based on that reasoning alone, a cons- any conservative should say, yes, as a matter of national sovereignty, this is essentially a legal invasion of our country. I mean, when you have – it's basically like you're back in the Middle Ages where you would have roaming tribes that would just migrate from area to area and they would overwhelm lo- local populations and eventually just take over a country because they outnumbered the local population. All right. Now let's move on to the best – Form that are my favorite part of American history on immigration. Oh boy, the base 1920s immigration restrictions. Here we go. The tw- there's a reason why the 20s was one of the best decades in American true, history. True, true, true. So, just a quick recap the initial waves of immigration came from Britain. After that, you had a massive wave from Germany and Ireland in the 1830s and 1840s. Post World War One. Um, no, no, no. I'm talking about the 1830s. No, oh, oh, sorry. The sorry. 1830s, 1840s. This is when, like the Irish famine. Oh, and yeah. Then, we already talked about that. Yeah. After the Civil War, you had another mass wave of German migration. These were people who were wealthier than the first wave. They mostly settled in the Midwest. They, they had enough money to move to the Midwest and buy farms. A lot of them took advantage of the law that Abraham Lincoln passed, which allowed you to claim free land out west if you simply homesteaded it. After that wave of migration, then you had a massive wave of Central and Eastern Europeans. You had roughly 4.5 million Italians who came to, uh, to the United States. You had roughly 2 million Jews from Russia who moved here. You had several million others from what is today Romania, Bulgaria, Greece, a lot of a lot of Central Eastern Europeans at the time who were vastly poorer than Western and Northern Europeans, vastly, vastly poorer than Northern, than Americans. So there was a major backlash to this. Most of these people were Catholic. Very few of them were Protestant, if any of them at all. In fact, maybe 2 to 5 percent were Protestant. So they did not fit into the character of the nation at the time. So there was a massive backlash. This uh, prompted a lot of nativists to push for immigration restrictions. So in 1920, by popular demand, they started slowly putting in limits and quotas. This culminated in the 1924 immigration law, which set quotas based on the ancestry of Americans in the 1890 census. So they said, okay, according to the 1890 census, this percentage of Americans have British ancestry, so future immigration will have to consist of this percentage of British immigrants. This percentage had Italian ancestry. This percentage will have to come from – say, let's say in 1890, if only 5 percent of Americans were of Italian heritage, going forward in 1924, only 5% of future immigrants would be able to be Italians. So this drastically limited Southern and Eastern European immigration. This allocated 55% of immigrant slots to Northern and Western Europe. It reduced Eastern and Southern European immigration to 15% and Asian immigration to 4%. There was a book put out called The Melting Pot Mistake by New York University sociologist Henry Pratt Fairchild. Well, now what's interesting, he was arguing that it was a mistake to try to have this melting pot whereby you tried to melt in a bunch of different ethnicities into the American ethnicity just because everyone's moving into their own little ethnic enclave. They're forming gangs. They're fighting rival gangs, kind of like I mentioned in the past on this show, how you create – when you create a nation of immigrants, you create a nation of warring immigrants because these people are bringing their old war prejudices. They're bringing their old war wars to American shores, and they're having street fights. Like you've got foreigners in the streets killing each other over turf, having turf wars, and the Americans sit back like, what is going on in our country? Like we didn't – asked for any of these people to come here. Why are they bringing their wars to our streets and bloody in our streets with stuff that have nothing to do with American citizens? Former state Senator Edwin Grant, a Democrat, summed up these sentiments when he wrote, quote, 
The prosperity made possible by our forefathers has lured the parasites of Europe, the scum that could have so well been eliminated from the melting pot, end quote. And this was a, a sentiment that was held even back in the 1700s by someone even like um, Benjamin Franklin when they were arguing that by sending convicts to the American colonies, Britain was basically sending their refuse to us. They were sending all the dregs of their society and the, all the street gangsters to our shores, and they were um, messing up the harmony that existed among American citizens. They were having a similar situation in the 20s and the early 1900s. This sparked outrage among some because this um, this immigration law, it excluded Europeans, it excluded Asians, but it didn't exclude anyone in the Western Hemisphere. So this didn't apply to anyone in the Western Hemisphere. As a result, Canadian immigration spiked and Mexican immigration spiked. So a lot of people were arguing that we shouldn't let in the quote-unquote mixed-breed Mexicans because they're not eligible for naturalization. Because technically, if you remember back in 1870, who was eligible for naturalization? Whites and blacks. Those are the only two groups of people who were eligible for naturalization. So if you weren't white and you weren't black, you weren't eligible to become an American citizen. So the Supreme Court, the federal government, not the Supreme Court, the federal government satisfied this by uh, just declaring all Mexicans white. So from the 18, 1930s on, Mexicans have always been considered white by the United States government. And uh, the 1924 Immigration Act required the pre-screen. This is this is key. This is this is why this this is one of the reasons why this bill was so good. It required the pre-screening of immigrants at embassies and consulates abroad, implementing a visa system and deporting illegal arrivals. So if someone wanted to immigrate here, they had to be pre-screened at their own embassy. And it, uh, this is if we enforce that today, it would drastically cut immigration. To enforce the law, Congress also created the U.S. Border Patrol. Additionally, Congress allowed immig- the Immigration Bureau agents to arrest illegal border crossers without obtaining warrants to board and search vessels, and to access private lands within 25 miles of the southern border, or any border, of the southern or northern border. Despite these powers, an estimated 175 illegal entries occurred annually. Hey, I, I would take 175 illegal entries any day of the week over what we have today. Yeah, that's that's putting it and very lightly. All of this, by the way, is put out by the Cato Institute, so I'm assuming oh they're going to they're gonna find statistics that are going to bolster their open, open, uh, open borders philosophy. So it probably wasn't quite that high. When the act went into force, as it was intended to be in 1929, Congress allowed illegal immigrants who were eligible for naturalization who were present since 1921 to regularize their status. Um, so it was like a, like a very mild form of amnesty. During the Depression, the government repatriated or deported more than a million Mexicans. Nice. So, even, so of course, immigration spiked from Canada and Mexico, and a lot of Mexicans were occupying jobs during the Great Depression that Americans desperately needed. So to solve the problem, to lower the labor pool, the government did what any government would do if they want to provide jobs for their own people. They just rounded them up and repatriated them. These Now, some of these – unfortunately, some of these people were actually U.S. citizens, but they were allowed to come back to the United States during World War II if they, were, if they happened to be accidentally deported as U.S. citizens. Now, this uh, – just to kind of jump forward, in 1950s, they up, in 1952, they up, updated the 1924 law to allow people from Asia to come in. But again, it was low quotas, and it was still kept at a trickle. In 1960, only five – hang on, I got it here. Oh, only 5.4 percent of the U.S. population in 1960 was foreign-born, 5.4 percent. In 1960, 84 percent of the U.S. foreign-born population in the United States were either from Europe or Canada – after the 1965 Hart Cellar Bill, which opened up the floodgates of immigration, in 1990, only 7% of green cards were issued to those from Europe. So we went from 84% to 7% in a span of 30 years. 22% of those in 1990 were from Asia, and 59% were 
to those from either Mexico, Central America, or South America. So pretty much all that did is you just open the floodgates to countries that were too poor to keep their people there, but also rich enough to where their people could afford to come to the United States. So we were attracting people who had skills, who had labor skills, and were able to compete for U.S. jobs and function in U.S. factories. But yet they were used to a standard of living so far below American standard of living, they were putting millions and millions of Americans out of work. And this this actually brings us to the 1986 immigration law. I know you're more familiar with than I am in which that Reagan passed. That's right. I know this ended up um, – it basically, if I'm uh, – correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it, it um, balanced – a certain level of amnesty with alleged border protections. It was supposed to stop across illegal. It was allegedly crosses. supposed to be a quid pro quid pro quo where uh, Reagan agreed, okay, I'll, I'll give this amnesty to about three million people in exchange for a later bill that will secure the border. And he he had a Democratic Congress at the time, so he was basically expecting Democrats to uphold their end of the deal. Which, of course, I I don't know what in God's name. Reagan was thinking when he said that, like when he came to that decision, like, well, I, I guess they're good for their word. He should have asked them to put their end of the deal first and then consider amnesty. But of course, that's not what he did. He ultimately ended up legalizing about three million people, most of whom were in California. And that played a massive role in the shifting of California blue, which we are seeing today. And speaking of Republican presidents who ended up screwing the American people over on immigration, <laughs> as you, you're probably aware of the diversity lottery. And most most of our listeners, I'm sure, are aware of the diversity lottery. This is uh, this is a, a lottery. It's, it's, it, it just, just like it sounds. It is an actual lottery where foreigners can apply for American visas, and it, it's based on countries that are underrepresented among American immigrants. So it's, it's meant to diversify the ethnic makeup of the United States. And this was passed under George Bush Sr., passed in 1990, and it allocates 55,000 immigration visas to this diversity visa program. 55,000 per year, randomly selected. They're not pre-screened for anything. They simply – that the only reason why they're allowed to come into the country is because they come from a country that is underrepresented in the United States population. And if there's no – there's no really no other immigration bill in U.S. history that is this blatant in your face. We are wanting to turn the United States into a globalist empire than the diversity lottery visa program. And you know, initially, immigration was limited to free white persons who were not criminals. Then eventually they expanded it, understandably so, after the Civil War to include people of African ancestry because if you're going to have four million black citizens, it doesn't make sense to exclude people from Africa since they can come here and assimilate into the black population. And then they eventually allowed um, – in 1924, they allowed American Indians to become citizens. They eventually allowed people from Asia to come here at a very low rate. But this particular program isn't meant to allow people to assimilate. In fact, the exact opposite is true. It's purposely intended to prevent assimilation because the, uh, the architects of this bill, the architects of this kind of policy, they want to create a country in which America is no longer a melting pot, but it's a salad bowl. You just throw in a bunch of ethnicities, a bunch of cultures into the salad bowl. You mix it up. Everyone lives their separate lives. They still keep their cultural traditions of their ancestors. They still continue to speak the languages of their ancestors. And really there's nothing that unites us other than capitalism. That's really the only thing. Everyone is pursuing capitalism to make money and get wealthy. But other than capitalism, there's really – we don't have a shared history. We don't even have a shared language, don't have a common culture. No, these these Americans certainly don't have common goals, right? No, no one has common goals, and these Americans who are coming through this diversity lottery, you know, how you think they care anything about the Pilgrims and Plymouth Rock and Jamestown and no. 
George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, they're as far removed from any of that as we are from, you know, medieval Chinese emperors. We don't we don't have any connection to medieval Chinese emperors. They don't have any connection to Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, and the Plymouth settlers. They don't have any connection to the the religious reasons for why the settlers at Plymouth wanted to come to the New World to begin with. So, you know, the average, the American people don't have a say in any of this. And it's and once the American people start to find out what these legislators are doing behind their back in the service of of the Chamber of Commerce, which we're going to get to in a minute, when we talk about the labor impact of immigration. Once they find out, they start they go into they go into the streets like it did during the Tea Party movement. Again, yeah. the Tea Party movement, yes, it was mostly based on fiscal conservatism, but a lot of it was a backlash to the immigration debates in the early two thousands when Republicans were trying to give amnesty to eleven million people here illegally. The media cycle, you know, primarily the conservative media cycle, primarily controlled by Fox News, turned the whole Tea Party movement into a, refer- a referendum on Obamacare and again fiscal conservatism and taxes and whatnot, with immigration not being a factor. Again, not until Trump brought it to the forefront in twenty sixteen. So with the with the history of immigration, of course, everyone, we're not going to go into the details of what happened in the Trump administration, what's happened in the Biden administration. I, my opinion, when you're given a history lesson, and this goes for history teachers across the board. This is the way I've always viewed it. If it's something that is in recent living memory or should be in recent living memory of your audience, you don't have to cover it. Right. Like if you can remember, if you're old enough to remember 2016, we don't need to go over. If you're old enough to remember uh, what happened in 2021, we don't need to cover. It. So I, that, that's my philosophy on uh, covering history. So. Now that we've kind of covered the history of immigration and how you know past generations of Americans viewed immigration, okay. So let's have a brief uh, kind of sum it up. What the right take on immigration should be? How should right wing Americans, conservative Americans, nationalist Americans view immigration in this day and age? So let's let's kind of focus on the labor impact of immigration. So obviously libertarians believe in open borders, like the Cato Institute yep. types. They don't understand the relationship between supply and demand. They seem to understand that when it comes to money and credit, but they can't seem to quite understand the relationship between supply and demand of wages and labor. So, yep. Eric, help, help us out here. You, I mean, you know a little bit about how economics works. If you increase the labor pool and you've got – in any economy, if you increase the labor pool by, let's say, even 50 percent, what's going to happen to wages in that economy? Wages are generally going to go down. Because there's more people who are competing for a limited number of jobs. Now, one of the arguments that people will use with this is they'll say, well, when immigrants come here, they create additional demand, which creates additional jobs. They come here and start businesses. Those Mm -hmm. businesses create jobs. Now, here's my counter to that. Here's why I would say that people who argue that from a labor perspective, immigrants increase the economic productivity of the United States. Most of these people who come here don't have a lot of money. Right. So if they start a business, you're talking about a little mom and pop corner store or maybe that, like a, a strawberry stand or something. Yes. Like, yeah. Yeah, exactly. That employs no one. They they run it themselves. They maybe they hire their kids. They're like child labor. And you got a situation where you got child labor which shouldn't exist in the United States. Yeah. So they're That's not, a whole other discussion. Right, right. They're, so they're not really creating jobs. They might hire one relative who shouldn't be here in the, you know, they bring in one relative from their country of origin shouldn't be here to begin with. So they're not really creating jobs. Um, the other argument is that, well, they create increased demand. Well, again, they're poor when they come here. W- what demand – they don't have any money to spend. Many of them are actually selling themselves into indentured servanthood and indentured servitude just to get into the country. They've sold their house and all their life savings, and the, the cartels basically own them now. And any little extra money they make, they're sending back to their relatives as remittance, as remittances. And this is the crucial thing, too, is, again, because they come from such poor third world countries, they are used to working for very low wages, if any wages at all. And they will come here and they will gladly be paid 
uh, $2 an hour. You know, they will gladly be paid well below most legal minimum wage that any average American would look at and say, hell no, I'm not working for $2 an hour. You're going to pay me, you know, seven fifty. You're going to pay me eight, nine, ten dollars an hour. You are not going to pay me this, this absolute, this wage from like the 1920s. Like, and that, again, is what results in this massive imbalance that, of course, an employer to save money will say, of course, I'm going to hire the, the worker who will complain, who will, who won't complain at all about me paying them so much little, A, because they're used to it, but B, because, again, they're illegal. And if they really want to complain, I can just report them to the authorities. So but, that, again, results in so many Americans being put out of work. That's the illegal aspect of it. But even if you look at the legal aspect, when an illegal immigrant comes here, they have to be paid above minimum wage. But you take your average job. Let's say it's a construction job, mm-hmm. and you, if you're a, an employer, you need to hire a crew. Okay, you can get you can either hire people piecemeal, and which which is what you had to do in the old days before we had so many immigrants. You had to go out and look for people who had to put up a now hiring sign, or you know one immigrant who knows 14 people from his country, and yep. he can be on the job tomorrow. What are you going to go with? I mean, as a business owner, you're wanting to save money. You can either try to look for American workers. Maybe after two or three months, you'll get all the people you need. Or you can just go to this immigrant and say, hey, look, I need 15 people and I need them tomorrow. It's like, I got you, boss. 15 people. We'll have them here tomorrow. They know how to build houses. They've been doing it their whole lives in our home country. We'll be here on time. We'll work hard. Oh, and $9 an hour. Sounds good. What a racket. Okay. So if you're in, if you're a construction employer, you know, you can pay 15 guys Nine dollars an hour, maybe maybe pay the immigrant who found these other immigrants a little more since he's doing the you know, he's doing the footwork or you can hold out and pay Americans fifteen dollars an hour. Obviously, anyone with any business sense is going to support massive immigration. This is why the Chamber of Commerce supports this. Amazon loves immigrants. They don't unionize. They don't complain. And they come and they work for lower wages than American citizens. So, yes, obviously, we need to deport illegal immigrants, but the legal the massive legal immigration is a problem because of the depressing uh, – because of the depression that it puts on wages. It lowers American wages, and not only does it lower American wages, but it keeps Americans from being able to find jobs because let's say you've got a bunch of unemployed people in West Virginia. They don't have any skills. They don't have college degrees. Where are they going to go to improve their livelihood? Well, naturally, they should be able to move to the suburbs of Washington, D.C., and work at Walmart, work at Target, work at Best Buy, work in fast food, work at these jobs that in a normal economy without all this massive immigration would pay them 15 to $25 an hour to do service jobs. Whereas at home, they can only make 8 or $9 an hour. If that, some of them can't even make $8 an hour doing that if those jobs exist. But they can't do that because all of these jobs are already filled with foreigners who are working for $12 an hour. So when people are thinking about packing everything they own and moving to a new city, that takes a lot of time and they lose a lot of money when they do that. They've got to have a job that's going to pay them something that's going to be worth it. The jobs that would be there that would pay them something that's worth it are no longer there because they're all completely filled up with foreigners. And those foreigners aren't even making enough money that would make it worth it for their family to move to those cities anyways. So this is why you have so much massive misery. You have such an opioid crisis. You have such a massive underemployment crisis with people who aren't even looking for work who are out of the workforce because these low-skilled people who are living homeless, who are living as drug addicts, who are working bouncing from job to job in rural areas, they can't move to cities that w- where they could make a living because all those jobs that are, ta- are taken up by foreigners because our Chamber of Commerce values the dollar more than it values patriotism. So that's the labor, that, that is the labor argument for why we should limit immigration down to a trickle. Now, as far as the assimilation argument, Obviously, you know, whenever you have a salad bowl, you've got people who are coming here 
who are keeping their culture, who are keeping loyalty to their own little tribe. They're developing little tribes around these cities. And you have a situation like during the BLM rights. A lot of the immigrants who participate in the BLM rights, they don't care anything about black people. They saw this as a way to exert their political influence and their tribal influence where they're at. Like take, for instance, the Somali faction in Michigan. Take, for instance, the, uh, all the Somalis in Minnesota and Minneapolis who joined in the BLM riots. Ilhan Omar's people. Ilhan Omar's people, yes. And I remember uh, uh, Tlaib. Uh, what's Rashida, her first name? Rashida, Rashida Tlaib. Tlaib. I remember inter- one time whenever she was questioning one of the um, – somebody, I don't remember, one of the bureaucrats in Congress. And she asked, do, do I look white? And he was kind of confused. He said, well, you can – whatever you want to be. Like you can – she's like, no, she wanted an answer. She wanted him to say, yes, you look white. And she wanted to say, no, I don't look white because – if I'm not white, then I get benefits. Our people get benefits. And the argument in the comments from a lot of these people from North Africa who followed Tlaib and obviously in Omar, Ilhan Omar are big fans of hers. They were arguing that they shouldn't be classified as white because if they're not classified as white, then they get extra benefits. Exactly. You create a situation where you have hundreds and hundreds of tribes of rent seekers who come to the United States. Because of chain migration, they bring in their family members to the United States. They take up American jobs and then they seek rent from the U.S. government as minorities. So you can't have a country in a situation like that where the native population is being undermined and not expect backlash. And so like the argument that we're a nation of immigrants simply doesn't hold water. Again, going back to the the original justification for this, that um, remind me the guy's name. This is going to be cut. But the guy who runs uh, CP, not CPB, the guy who runs ICE, the Cuban. Oh, uh, Mayorkas. So like Alejandro Mayorkas, he's a huge proponent of this nation of immigrants myth. The idea being that um, that all of Amer- uh, the original Americans were immigrants, and I even saw a History.com article, which we'll link in the show notes. Th- this History.com article was trying to expand the definition of immigrants to argue that the land bridge Asians who came here thousands and thousands of years ago, that they themselves were immigrants. And basically redefining the definition of immigrant to mean any group of people who moves anywhere. An immigrant is someone who moves from one country to another country. The British who settled in North America were not immigrants because they were subjects and citizens of the British crown moving from one section of the British Empire to another section of the British Empire. A German who moved to Pennsylvania was an immigrant because he was subject to a different kingdom, moving into a different kingdom, into the British kingdom. So we need to understand an immigrant is someone who moves from one country to another. It is not someone who moves from Sussex, England, to Massachusetts when Massachusetts is under the British crown. So unless Americans can understand that we're not a nation of immigrants, that we actually are a British-derived country, like a real country and not just a salad bowl, you're not going to see a serious policy shift. You have to change the mindset of Americans before you're going to get Americans to under to really you know, build up the political support to say to uh, to regen up something like the 1924 well, Immigration Act. And again, you've got to also understand the key difference between immigrants and settlers. We very much are a nation of settlers, you know, from the pilgrims all the way, of course, to the founding fathers. And that's why certainly you look at, you know, immigration, mass immigration in the, the 1800s, for example, you talked about in the 1840s in the lead up to the Civil War. The difference being there is that another difference being there, of course, is that you didn't have a welfare state back then. There was no there was no benefits whatsoever for being unemployed. You weren't given free health care. You were not given free anything by the government. You were expected to find a job or to start a business or something, you know, go work in a blacksmith shop, whatever, and work to earn what you could get to live in that little apartment in, in, in Brooklyn or whatever. Whereas now, of course, they come here because we have a welfare state. Again, we have politicians, you know, every Democrat candidate running for president in 2020 pledge to give free Translation, taxpayer-funded health care to illegal aliens. 
and then it only, it only goes from there to free housing, free education, free everything. We'll give them free everything. They do not come across the border because they love the Statue of Liberty and the Stars and Stripes. They don't believe in American exceptionalism. They come here because they know they're going to get free handouts. They'll get the whole world handed to them on a silver platter, and they won't have to pay for it. That that isn't that is would it would curb immigration if we completely eliminated all welfare for all immigrants, but it wouldn't it would cut it down. I would say probably by ten percent, ten fifteen percent. Oh, I think more than that. Well, if you, if you look that. at if you look at the immigration from Ireland, we didn't have welfare, but they still kept coming. You look at the immigration. I'm talking from about German. the immigration today. Like uh, when, they, when they see when they are going to the border, when they have these photo ops where immigrants are approaching the border wearing Biden campaign T-shirts because they they see these clips obviously translated for them in Spanish. They see these clips of Biden saying, yes, I'm going to give them all free health care, free health care for all undocumented immigrants, because that's the phrase they use, not illegal aliens. No, I, I agree that that is certainly a magnet. But even if you eliminated that magnet, all most of those people would still come here because most of them aren't coming here. You can't send back remittances on welfare. Free health care isn't going to feed your family that's still back in Guatemala. Most of them are coming here so they can work jobs these service industry jobs uh, most of uh, yeah the welfare is a big magnet if you eliminate that a lot of them are going to say you know what i don't want to work i'd rather just sit back and you know eat whatever food they have down there yeah so like a lot of these people wouldn't come but the majority of them would because most of them are actually coming here to work jobs and that is a problem it's not simply a problem that they're coming here to leech off our taxpayers it's that they want to come here and become taxpayers and become workers filling up jobs that americans desperately need and for wages that Americans aren't, you know, can't afford to work on. So, yes, definitely eliminating welfare, deporting illegal immigrants are that's a huge that would um, that would make the system much much easier for American citizens. But the ultimate, if we really want to change our immigration policy, we have to limit legal immigration of among people who actually want to come here and work hard and become loyal American citizens. Because let's be honest, there's a lot of people out there. There's tens of millions of people who would love to come here and contribute. We simply can't let them because we're a real country, or at least we're, we want to be a real country in which we prioritize the needs of hardworking Americans above the needs of hardworking Irish or hardworking Somalis or hardworking Chinese. Like you have to first – if everything is going good and unemployment is like 2 percent and Americans are – you know, we could use the labor. Like say, for instance, right after the Civil War when so many Americans were killed, it's understandable that Americans would open our borders to massive immigration at that point because we needed people. We needed young, strong, hardworking men to come build the railroad. But in the 1890s, you know, you got a new generation of young, strong, hardworking Americans. You don't need all of that foreign immigrant labor. And we didn't adjust for that. We just kept letting them in. We let 12 million people come in through Ellis Island. And that's really what uh, created the backlash that created the political foundation for the 1924 Immigration Act. But, yeah, I mean, even if all the immigrants are hardworking, good people, there has to be a limit. There has to be – you can't just let in everybody who wants to contribute to society because at that point, you're not a real country. You're just a shopping mall. You know, just a shopping mall with uh, now hiring applications. You're an economic zone it, within a certain – Yes, you're basically like uh, like Singapore at that point. And it just reminds me there's this big sign right here in uh, in Arlington, right after you cross the, across the key bridge between um, – as you enter Arlington from Georgetown that says uh, in Spanish – now hiring concrete workers. They don't even put the sign in English. It's in Spanish. Big, bold letters. As soon as you enter Virginia, the first thing you see is a sign in Spanish that says, now hiring workers. And it's because they understand that you're not going to get – that. They're specifically, they specifically want to hire Spanish-speaking foreigners because the Spanish-speaking foreigners are not going to require the kind of salaries that English-speaking Americans are going to require. It, it, people just pass it all the time. They don't think twice about it because the elite opinion in America is that we don't do that kind of work. 
because they don't. Like the college-educated, white-collar American elites would never think of getting their hands dirty to actually do physical labor. They've probably never actually met an American who gets his hands dirty and does physical labor. So in their mind, well, of course they would put it in Spanish because Americans don't want to do it. Americans don't want to do that kind of work. And it really it does – you have to break down that class divide and create solidarity between college-educated Americans to where they actually care about the fate of non-college-educated, blue-collar Americans and want these jobs to go to their fellow Americans. But when our colleges are churning out globalist elites who view you know, more solidarity with French and British and German elites more than they do their fellow Americans in West Virginia and Western Pennsylvania, then that creates a situation where they let in all this cheap labor because they value their bottom line more than they value their own Americans. And that is the right take on immigration. We thank you guys so much for sticking around for this, again, very special inaugural episode of our new series, The Long Take with the right take. We, we have our regular episodes. We have our special guest interviews every now and then. And again, we are going to continue delivering these episodes for you every now and then and a wide variety of social, socio-cultural issues that really are important in understanding how we got to where we are today and how we can possibly get out of the mess we are in today. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. As always, be sure to follow us for all of our latest content at our website, righttakepodcast.com. The full list of podcast platforms and social media websites where we are available, righttakepodcast.com slash subscribe. And as always, guys, if you are feeling so generous, righttakepodcast.com slash support. We'll talk to you next week, guys. 